Thank you. I'm Father Mitch Packer, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Tonight on EWTN Live, we will talk about ways that Catholics can live their faith with evangelistic zeal while recognizing that they are in a state of exile in this world and are looking toward our forever home in heaven. First, before we get to that topic, I want to speak briefly with EWTN's Ryan Penny about how EWTN's digital media efforts are working to get more people to make that journey to heaven with us. Ryan, what do you have going for us? Thanks for having me back, Father. It's always, always a pleasure. There are three programs that are new mm-hmm. to our on-demand platform this month that I wanted to highlight. Yes. You know, one of the ways of looking at the confessional, I think, is as a miracle box, mm-hmm. which is what one of our new shows is so aptly named. It talks about the sacrament of penance and the power it has to transform and restore and heal mm-hmm. the lives of men and women. Mm-hmm. And it, and it uh, shows this by recounting uh, true stories of men and women in this beautiful film and Scott Hahn is actually featured in the, in the film and he talks about how the sacraments are not primarily rituals that we perform for God so much as mysteries that God performs for us. And so we have a great gift in this sacrament of confession more you know much more than many of us realize and mm-hmm. so this is a very illuminating film that I encourage everyone to go and watch much okay. to your edification. And then the greatest of the sacraments is the focus of another fantastic, fantastic addition to On Demand in Alive in Christ, the Eucharistic Martyrs. Mm-hmm. I think one mm-hmm. of the greatest ways for us to have our um, faith inspired and, and encouraged in the real presence of our Lord in the Most Blessed Sacrament is by learning about the early church fathers whose uh, uh, to whom the Eucharist was central to the faith that mm-hmm. they died for. Um, and this film takes us into the worlds of St. Ignatius of Antioch and St. Justin Martyr. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Very, very beautiful film. And they had a faith in the Eucharist that we're all supposed to have, like right. uh, a faith of um, that we're meant to have the blood of Christ running through us to give us the strength to transform the world. And that's what we're all supposed to do with that kind of a faith. And that's the focus of the last program uh, that's a recent addition to On Demand that I wanted to talk about tonight called The Hour of the Laity, uh, which features uh, Catholic men and women from all walks of life recounting what they're doing to revitalize Christendom and their, and their professions and their homes mm-hmm. and their communities and how they're answering the universal call to holiness. Good. And sounds like some good programs that you're getting online. Yes, for very us. much so. And speaking of holiness, there's a there's a, a new YouTube short of Mother Angelica talking about what holiness means for all of us. Okay. Um, that I encourage everyone to go see, as well as all of our other shorts that have been very popular on our YouTube channel that has over 880,000 subscribers now. Cool. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention that'll be a new addition to our YouTube channel later this week. Um, in honor of the Eucharistic revival happening mm-hmm. in the church in America right now, um, 
in anticipation of the epic Eucharistic uh, Congress happening next summer is we have produced some uh, series of videos that, were, that we've called Revivals, Stories of Eucharistic Transformation, featuring um, a myriad of young adult Catholic men and women sharing how the Eucharist has uh, transformed them. Okay. And so the first one is going to be featuring Sister Teresa Margaret of the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart in Los Angeles. Nice. Uh, she's uh, truly a joy uh, to watch and her video, her story will be making its debut on YouTube later this week. So, and that's all I have for tonight, Father. Sounds good. Appreciate that, Ron. And we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guest. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Our guest tonight, no doubt, will be very familiar to many of you. He's hosted a number of shows on our network and has written many books on a wide range of Catholic topics. His newest book reminds us that, like the old song says, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. So how are we to live in the meantime as we await the coming of the Lord. Our guest is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, as well as the Father Michael Scanlon Chair of Biblical Theology and the new evangelization at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's also the co-author of a new book called Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the journey home. Please welcome my good friend also, Dr. Scott Hahn. Scott, welcome. Great good to, to be have with you. You, you oh. know, I, I mentioned today at the morning mass that it's the feast of all saints of the Franciscans. And I just was reminded. The seraphic order. The seraphic <laughs> order. You know, we Jesuits still need education on all this. <laughs> remind me of these three priests that died and went to heaven. All were really good. And they were told by St. Peter, any spiritual favor you want, it's yours. The three of them say, well, we'd love to see the nativity of our Lord. Says, no time in heaven, bam, there it is. The Franciscan bursts into tears of joy. Oh, bellissimo bambino Gesù. The Dominican goes into an ecstasy and immediately starts writing a book, De Domini Nativitate, just writing and filled with new insights. The Jesuit, more bold than the other two, walks into the scene and goes up to St. Joseph and says, have you thought about where you're going to send him to school yet? <laughs> 
At any rate, that's not what they teach over at Saint at the Franciscan University. Oh, we've been there for 33 years. Love <laughs> is that it. right? Yeah. All oh, six of our great. kids have gone through. Now we're hoping that some of our 22 grandkids might come through as well. So 22, that's a good start. <laughs> it's from the first three. <laughs> from the first three, start toward the tribe. Right. But the the story about these three priests is appropriate to your book because your book is talking about how here in this world we are living in exile there's there's a sense that people have that you know the world is beautiful and wonderful but it's not fully home and we have as our gospel a message that ultimately our home is with god face to face in heaven we have these various spiritual uh, wonders that we will see. You write this book about that topic, especially focusing on an epistle that's a favorite of both of ours, Hebrews. Right. In Hebrews 11 and 12, why did you choose that particular section? Well, as you said, it's my personal favorite of all of the New Testament books. It is also saturated with Old Testament scriptures like no other. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in chapter 11, we have what is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, Mm -hmm. going all the way back to Abel, going through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Mm -hmm. and not only the patriarchs, but Moses and Joshua and the judges and all the way through the prophets. And, And so it is a panoramic overview, but it identifies the common thread in terms of the faith that they all shared as pilgrims in this world which doesn't mean that we are called to be hermits or monks and rejecting the world with contempt. No, if God so loved the world that he gave his only son, we should passionately love the world as well, but we should also not confuse the world with our final destination. And so as Paul points out in Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and he uses the technical legal term, polytuma, Mm -hmm. and so we have dual citizenship, but they're not equal. And so what we look, you know, you mentioned the Holy Family, you mentioned the Nativity, and I'm just kind of reminded of what it's like for people today who are striving to be virtuous, striving to be faithful, but they also live in fear of corrupt authorities who might be targeting those precisely because they're virtuous or faithful. And what am I talking about when I'm talking about the Holy Family in Bethlehem? I mean, here you have Herod, complicit priest telling him what Micah said about Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. So they flee to Egypt as pilgrims, a kind of exile for them as well. And I mean, that's nothing compared to Holy Week in terms of rejection and opposition and that sort of thing. So I wrote this book with Brandon primarily because we both decided we need this book. Brandon. Brandon McGinley is a dear friend. And, And Brandon is a gifted writer and a, a, a great partner. He's now f- full-time at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the paper I used to deliver as a paper boy when I was a kid. And in, I won't go into the details, but he is, he's a remarkable apostle in the middle of the world there in the Pittsburgh mm-hmm. area where I grew up. But we, we decided we needed it because like a lot of other Catholics, there's a sense of alienation that we share. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you're growing up in the 21st, you're, you're raising a family in the 21st century and you're looking around and you're saying, nobody saw this coming. You know, the, uh, the transgenderism, but I mean, you could just make a list, a practical litany of things 
that 10 years ago would have just seemed implausible. Uh, well, and one point very relevant, the increase of religious harassment, if not persecution, worst for the Jews, Right, but also toward us Catholics and other Christians, and toward Muslims as well. We just saw three young uh, Muslim men shot. Right, you know, uh, this over the weekend. I mean, the, the religious harassment and persecution, uh, again, especially for Jewish people, has increased uh, tremendously by almost five hundred percent. Right. You know, and when you read the Old Testament, you recognize that this is a legacy that goes back long before Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to Egypt and so on. But it's also something that we as Christians share and that Catholic martyrs testify to. But right now there's a sense in which we have to rediscover this truth because as Catholics living in America, trying to raise family, we recognize this sense of alienation is not only alienation, you know, alienation from the culture, but it's even within the church. You know, it might be the diocese, it might even be your own parish where there's so much confusion. I find a lot of Catholics are tempted to give in to anger, into a kind of discouragement, uh, a depression. Mm -hmm. uh, they might lash out in a cynical sort of way. Mm -hmm. And so what Brandon and I are doing in Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home, is looking for practical steps that people can take in order to really have a constructive response. That is, what can I do today, tomorrow, and the next day? But not only in terms of like planting the fall crop so you've got food in the winter, but also, you know, it's like the need that we have to plant forests so that our grandkids are gonna have lumber for their homes and their, their furniture. We have to think long-term. And what we find is that in the Catholic Church, you discover, well, in any religion, you discover this power, this potential to form civilizations. But the Catholic faith has a unique capacity to form great civilizations. Mm -hmm. uh, and we wrote a book about this a couple of years ago called It Is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. And it sold well and it generated a lot of enthusiasm, but a lot of people finished it and said, come on, get real. We're not gonna see this, our grandkids aren't, so how do we deal with the present? And so we set about working on a sequel, but it's really not a sequel. It's almost the case that you might do better reading Catholics in Exile before yeah, it I, is right I, and just. That's exactly my reaction. This I saw as a prequel. Exactly. You know, this is something that, you know, anticipates this other possibility. You have to cope with what believers in God have coped with for the millennia. Right. I think the temptation still... Re I mean, it still remains for a lot of Catholics to, you know, sort of hanker for the preconciliar glory days of the 50s when you had Fulton Sheen and Bing Crosby playing a priest or whatever, as though that was sort of like Camelot for Catholics in America. And there were some great graces, I understand that. But, but you know, the blame game really involves, you know, it's, it's like a, it's not win-win, it's loser-loser. And so the idea that we might point back to the 13th century, like Father Walsh's book, The 13th Century, The Greatest of Centuries, it just doesn't do any good. You know, so it's a reminder that not only is the Catholic faith unique in its, in its potential to form civilization, but it's a reminder that the Catholic faith does not exist primarily to form civilization. It exists primarily to form saints, to form followers of Christ, lovers of God. And you could become a saint 
in a Catholic culture, you can become a saint anywhere under adverse circumstances. And so it's important to recognize that if you were to go back to the 13th century and ask Bonaventure or ask Aquinas and ask others, you know, what's it like living in Catholic Christendom? They would tell you, we're pilgrims, we're in exile, we're not home yet, we're wayfarers, via Torres mm -hmm. and so on. And I think this has been lost because we get so caught up in election cycles, we get so caught up in news cycles, there's almost a need for that temperance. I'm not suggesting EWTN abstinence, but sometimes it would be good to kind of turn off your favorite cable news network because of all of the news, it just swamps you. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it seems to me that what we've got to recognize that, okay, the bad news is worse than anybody expected, mm -hmm. but the good news is actually far greater than the bad news is bad. And the good news, especially in this period of Eucharistic revival, you know, where you're discovering, it's not just talking points, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It is Jesus instituting the Eucharist, which is where the sacrifice is initiated. Calvary is where that sacrifice is consummated. It isn't just a Roman execution. You have to understand both in light of each other. And then Easter Sunday is where that sacrifice becomes the blessed sacrament. We call it the Paschal Mystery. And we, we, we profess this belief, but we have to really come to a deeper possession of this because I'm convinced it's going to generate the joy that we need to get through the dark times, knowing that they're probably going to get darker. You know, and so if you were to interview Jeremiah, my favorite prophet, in Jerusalem at the time of the exile, and you were to say to him, okay, you're still in Jerusalem, what's it like? He would say the same thing. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners. So in Hebrews 11 and 12, you find that. In 1 Peter 1, 1, in James 1, 1, to the exiles in the diaspora. Now, diaspora evokes dispersion. We're just scattered. But the actual term, as you know in the Greek, is rooted in the notion of sowing seed. And so scattering seed is what God is doing with his people. You know, we would like to have a centripetal move, you know, to simply get to Jerusalem. But yeah, in fact, seed, it's uh, centrifugal. We were sent out. Yeah, a lot of times seed would be happy just to stay inside a bushel basket. That's right. But nothing grows there. Yeah. And when you see how the Lord God sows the seed, one of the most interesting oracles of Jeremiah, who's the prophet of the exile, in Jeremiah 24, he delivers an oracle to the rulers in Jerusalem who were spared the first exile. They weren't sent into Babylon the way the, the first ones were. And he has two baskets, good figs and bad figs. And the rulers just assume that they're the good figs because we were spared. And the bad figs are the ones who suffered exile. But he reverses that. Precisely because of the corruption of the rulers in Jerusalem, they're the bad figs and they're rotting. The good figs are the Anawim, the poor of the Lord, who through their poverty, through their penance, through their difficulties in exile, they're being refined like gold in fire the good figs, and if the bad figs have any hope of redemption, look to the faithfulness and the suffering fidelity of them. And this sets into motion something that we really emphasize, and that is Jeremiah 29. In chapter 4, we call it the Jeremiah option. And you know why, because on the one hand, verse 11 of chapter 29 is many people's favorite verse. I know it was Kimberly's when we first met and when we we're dating and all of that, and that is, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for woe. And it describes this great future. To whom? 
to the exiles in Babylon? Are you kidding? Well, the only way to make sense out of verse 11 is to back up and read the first 10 verses. And this is where he gives us seven practical steps for exiles, not just to survive, but for people who are pilgrims in Babylon to flourish. First of all, build houses and live in them. So get settled. Don't just, you know, set up a tent. Don't just rent an apartment. Build homes. And then the second thing I think in some ways is just as important, plant gardens and enjoy the, the fruit. In other words, get to work. Get your hands dirty and enjoy the fruit of your labor. The third is, I think, in some ways just as important still, and that is this idea of take wives, have sons and daughters, be centered on your family. And the fourth is find spouses for your kids as well, so that it's not just holding your breath for 70 years of Babylonian captivity. You're thinking intergenerationally. And really, you're thinking from an eternal perspective, which is how pilgrims should always live. And by the time you get to the last three, I think you recognize the pattern that emerges is this, that number five is multiply there and do not decrease. Are you serious? In Babylon? Yeah. Be fruitful and multiply wherever the Lord God sends you. And number six is you pray for the welfare of the city to which the Lord God has driven you. And you know, the word for welfare in the Hebrew is shalom. shalom. Yeah, you're praying not just for the peace, but for the prosperity. And as you read about the condition of the exiles, and as you look at characters like Daniel and his friends in the opening chapters, you realize once again, as gold refined by fire, Daniel sets into motion the graces that will eventually lead Nebuchadnezzar to profess that the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, is the true God, the God of gods. And he undergoes what appears to be a conversion, but what we find is that throughout the captivity, the diaspora Jews were capable of finding a way to be a light to the nations. And if that was true in the old, before Pentecost, how much truer is it for us now? And the seventh one is obviously the most important in that one is prayer. Pray for the peace of the city, pray for your family, pray for others. And so it's fitting that the seventh one would be about prayer, not just a quiet time, but it would be about the Sabbath. If all you can do is light a candle because the temple will soon be in ruins. You can't go up as pilgrims, offer the animal sacrifices, but you can light a candle. You can sing the songs of Zion. You can pray together as a family. Do whatever you can do and God will do more with your less. And you know, to this day, I, I don't want to get sidetracked, but I'm, I'm fascinated, as I suspect you might be too, by the Lubavitchers. That is, mm -hmm you have this Jewish movement known as Chavad, and they're Orthodox Jews, but they're not just rooted in the law, they're rooted in the joy of the study of Torah. Even mm -hmm. Chavad is a kind of acrostic for wisdom, understanding, and, and knowledge. And, and so they invite you know, non-practicing Jews who are unaffiliated just to teach them how to light a Sabbath candle, how to say your prayers, how to enjoy you know, a kosher meal, it's not like condemning them. And I'm not here to sell the Lubavitchers are the Reib or, you know, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who some mm -hmm. regard I think as the Messiah. Right. But I'm just saying they have always had something to teach us because they know the, di the, the diaspora. They know what it's like to be what Pope Benedict might describe as a creative minority. But they also know how to do what we as Catholics ought to be doing at least as well 
and that is like a pebble in a pond that sends ripples out. We ought to be just sending grace out even as our culture becomes more, whatever, disgraced. I, I think this is uh, one of the points I was making in my homily this morning. We need saints to rise up who understand that this world is not your permanent home. Right. Heaven is your permanent home. I want to live in such a way that I get to go to heaven, but at the same time, that will entail being and doing what is good now. You know, that my prayer life, my service of other people, and renewing this world, and being 11 in this world, all of that is part of being a saint who at the same time has a sense of detachment because you have faith. Uh, and it's one of the points you bring out a number of times in your book, that because you have faith, you don't say, well, I've got to have this. You know, I, I can't live without, you know, a Tesla or whatever <laughs> it might be. You know, that, that uh, you know, those things are fine, but if you don't get them, you don't go to hell for that. You look always to what gets you and others to heaven. That's right. And that is the role that we have. So we live in this exile, but we don't hate the world. We, by our prayer and service, build it up. And, you know, I kept thinking as I was reading through your book, you know, that it was Catholics who were focused on heaven that invented the concept and the reality of a hospital right. to take care of sick and dying people here. Because you want heaven, you'll say, oh, no, they're sick. Let them die so they get to heaven faster. No, let's care for the sick. And they, we invented the university, right. on and on, the mental institution. Right, the branches care. of science, too, for that, that matter. So, you know, the father of seismology is a Jesuit. The discoverer of the Big Bang theory is a diocesan priest. The, the father of um, uh, genetics is an Augustinian. I, on and on. We care about this world and, and science right. and all this without forgetting that it's all for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Yeah, I mean, Catholics in exile is meant to show people that hard work is the instrument of our own sanctification, not apart from prayer, but not merely prayer. Mm -hmm. So to coordinate the rhythm of life each and every day is to recognize that I've got to go to work, I've got to be reliable, I've got to be a dependable co-worker as well, I've got to be efficient, I've got to produce excellent work as best as I can, and I can turn that into prayer just as I can pray about my co-workers but I must admit that the thing that also drives us into holiness is above all the sacraments and how they constitute the liturgy. You know, we borrow a phrase from Karl Marx, the engine of history, because it's not economic production. It's not the distribution of labor. You know, it really is the liturgy, the holy Eucharist, the holy sacrifice of the mass. You see it in the visions of the apocalypse and many readers of Catholics in Exile have been comparing it to an earlier book called The Lamb's Supper, right. because it picks up really where The Lamb's Supper leaves off, 
Because when you study the apocalypse, you realize, okay, rapture doesn't occur once, second coming doesn't, antichrist nowhere in the 22 chapters of the apocalypse. What do you find? Well, the amen, the alleluia, the agnus dei, the sanctus, the holy, 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 the prayers, the songs, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. You know, it set me up to recognize in my very first mass, like, this is what John was describing. This is what gets the church through persecution in every single age. Yeah. It's not disconnected from the second coming, but you're going to see that at the end of history, we'll discover the culmination of the Lamb who sits upon the throne and of the, the people of God, the laity and the clergy, who unite their prayer and their work to the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and we can release graces that exceed our wildest dreams. And again, bring the grace of conversion to people and cultures. It reminds me of a, one of my Jesuit brothers that I had met in, uh, out west. He was from California province. He had been in a Chinese communist prison. His mother snuck hosts and wine. And that cap for a little bottle was his chalice more precious than the gold, silver, and all that. Because in the midst of that form of oppression, he could celebrate Mass, take the host, break it into tiny pieces, and in the, when they did their exercise, make sure that the other priests all got a, uh, a portion of the host. Oh. The Eucharist sustains in the worst of situations. Right. And the idea that, well... There's, the, the church is in a bad way, and I don't, I don't like the way that we're dealing with the Latin in the Mass. We don't have that enough uh, anymore, and uh, I don't like this, and the priests are corrupt, or whatever it might be. I mean, be. the list of legitimate gripes is long. <laughs> yeah. But that's precisely when you need Jesus exactly. to be the center. And the joy if, of the Lord to be your strength. You know, this is not an option for us because it's just too easy to lose the faith or give in to despair. You know, another Jesuit, Walter Chiswick, yeah. you know, in yeah. Siberia, the Eucharist and Sing. how they prize this. I mean, to make Christ the center of our life is not just like pious, it's sanctified common sense. It's the only rational, philosophically logical way to respond to what we've professed all of our lives to be true. And so to see that the Eucharist, I mean, if you have a church with 100 people and you've got 100 hosts, it isn't like the Eucharist is 1% per person. Christ is giving himself 100%. You take a little part of that host, that's 100% Jesus. Exactly. And he wants to give himself entirely to you, and he exactly. wants to invite us to give 100% of ourselves to him and 100% of our work and 100% of our homes. Yeah. Well, we don't have 100% of time. <laughs> Never do we. To take a break, we'll be back with your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. We are discussing Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home, which is written by Scott 
Hahn, our guest, and his friend, Brandon McGinley. It is item A323 at our religious catalog. And just go to EWTNRC.com and you can order the book there. Ready for some questions? I would love it. Let's start sure. off with this young man. Sir, where are you from? Hi, uh, my name is Tim. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. Good to uh, have you. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Hahn, you were talking about how we need to have, as Catholics, a spirit of thankfulness during times of tribulation. And I was wondering, who is your favorite saint to look to as an example for that? Great question. Thanks, Tim. Um, the one that comes to my mind will immediately trigger another. So the one that comes to my mind is Pope St. John Paul II. And the reason why is because he embodies in our own lifetime how gold refined by fire. It might be the Soviets, it might be the Nazis, it might be an underground seminary, it might be you know all of the different things that he went through, including the loss of his mother. But behind Karovoitiwa stands a man that is featured in Catholics in Exile. And one of my heroes, one of Brandon's heroes, and that is Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski. If you were to ask devout Catholic Poles all about John Paul, their heart would leap. But if you were to ask them, what explains this amazing man? They would say, oh, that would be Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski. He wasn't just the primate. He was the one who wrote about work under the, the Nazis, under the Soviets. He himself was imprisoned. He went through so much. He came out with a book that was translated just simply entitled Work in 1960. Scepter Press published. It's out of print, but it's back in print in different forms. And what he did was to inspire us not only to pray with discipline, but to work for excellence. And at the same time, to encourage friends, family, neighbors, but especially co-workers through friendship. And Cardinal Wyszynski's spiritual wisdom, in a certain sense, without him, I'm not sure we would have had a John Paul II. And so, just like behind every great man is a great woman, well, behind a great pope like John Paul is a great Polish primate, largely unknown to most Americans unless you happen to be American-Polish. But Stefan Wyszynski, to me, would be the hero behind John Paul. Yeah, thank you. Well, good. Yeah, it's... Uh, so, uh, I, one of the saints I would think of is St. Jean de Brebeuf. Perfect. Um, he was very, very good at Greek and Latin, fine teacher in France. And when he came to the missions among the Huron and the Iroquois uh, here in America, he could not learn the language. He was such a great linguist in Europe. Mm. And he could not learn how to speak. He was constantly ridiculed for how badly he spoke Iran. And the, despite that, he ends up becoming this great saint who was horribly tortured for the faith. And, constant, and through all that humiliation of going from great scholarship to being be barely able to speak much more than the small children, and, uh, and then becomes a great saint because in his humility 
he offered his life and experienced torture. That's inspiring. Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's, he's, he's a remarkable saint. Yeah, we have so many saints, so many martyrs, so many unnamed saints that we've been celebrating yes. throughout November. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's time for us to recognize that the new normal is the old normal. That is, living life in a secularized culture that is hostile to virtue and to our own beliefs, it isn't really new. No. And once we get over ourselves, we're recognizing that the martyrs and the saints are going to give us living examples, but not just like, you know, plaster statues. They're alive. Hebrews 11 shows us that the saints in heaven are not dead. They're more alive than we are, and they're praying for us harder than they were when they were on this planet. Mm -hmm. And so turn to them and at the same time recognize that Christ is the source of holiness for all of them as he will be for us. You know, my, my, my uh, father and mother-in-law are staying with us for the last two weeks, Dr. Kirk and, 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 his, and, his, and his wife, and they're in their early 90s. And I've heard so many times my father-in-law inspire people by saying, Jesus promised us rivers of living water. And how many of us are willing to settle for just a little trickle? Mm -hmm. It's like, let's get over ourselves. Let's go to our Lord and just say to him, you know, how can you expect us to make it unless you pour out a superabundance of grace? And we're not going to see Jesus up in heaven saying, well, I'll think about it. What we'll discover is he wants to give us that grace more than we want, to, than we want him to. Infinitely more. That's right. So just open up your heart, pour out the grief, and even the anger and all of the rest, he's tough enough to take it. You know, 150 psalms, roughly 42% are what scholars call complaint psalms. Mm -hmm. Psalms of complaint. I wouldn't complain to God. Well, actually, the psalmist does regularly. We tend to complain about God. Mm -hmm. like those who murmured in the wilderness. And so living in exile, you know, Psalm 137, for example, how can we sing the, the Lord's song in a foreign land? Well, just do it. And you're going to send grace out to the foreigners, the mm -hmm. captors as well. And I think the more we do what Malachi says, and that is in a humble, trustful way, put the Lord to the test. And he will never be outdone in generosity. Mm -hmm. So whatever we do in trust and faith and sacrifice, it might not be a quid pro quo like we would want it, but it will always exceed the things that we thought we really needed. Yeah. And while he is giving us this river of grace, we also have to be alert that that doesn't mean the world will say, oh, that's great. Why didn't you put it this way? And yeah. like, Jesus, no, why they, didn't you? No, they, they're gonna not going to like us. And you got to be ready for, again, that's part of your theme that right. we're not at home here. And we live at a time, whether it's a secular or a religious hero, there's such cynicism that comes from, I think, the depression so many folks, secular people have, that they just want to attack all virtue with cynicism. And I, I used to like Archbishop Sheen's definition of a cynic, someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah, I love that. So this is uh, something that we have to realize. The, the Lord's grace flowing abundantly to us may not mean that the world is happy with that, right. but we don't care that they're going to give their approval. It's our Lord's approval. Beautiful. We have another caller. Hello, Mike in Pennsylvania. 
Yes, uh, good evening, Father Mitch. Uh, this is Mike from Pittsburgh, PA. Um, I, I just want to ask a question that back in 2011, I went to Steubenville for a Defending the Faith conference where both of you spoke. And Sounds like us. The, <laughs> and one of the themes that came out of it, Cardinal Donald Worrell gave the opening remarks in which he said that we had prepared to be uh, worshiping in small groups as Catholics. And then I further on read how uh, Pope Benedict XVI, the late Pope Benedict XVI, believed in a similar thing, which some believe he picked up from the Jesuit uh, Father Alfred Delp, yes. uh, who wrote prior to his uh, execution in Nazi Germany. He said, like, the Church's mission depended on the seriousness of its transcendent commitment in worship, and church renewal was imperative if it gives up on a, even even if it gives up on a large number of members. And I'm just kind of curious uh, how you go about that. We have so many we have big number of Catholics, but how many of them are really committed? And lastly, uh, Father Mitch, there was a lot of excitement at that conference about anticipating a persecution from the United States against Catholics, and people were almost welcoming them at the conference. And you wisely cautioned, yes, there could be, you said something to, extent, something to the extent that, yes, there could be some Catholic heroics, but in the process, we would lose probably a lot of Catholics who would walk away from the faith because of the persecution. How do you reconcile that with today's tough culture? That's where I'll leave it. Great question. Yeah, I, first of all, I would say that uh, you would really find uh, Dr. Hahn's book very beneficial. You're thinking along similar lines, and he'll help fill in some of the blanks for you, so I'd recommend that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thank you for the question, Mike. I'm a fellow Pittsburgher. That was my hometown, and so it's nice to hear a, a voice from the bird. But the answer to the question is it's not easy to answer this one. You know, on the one hand, I think we have to recognize what Pope Benedict said, and that is success is not one of the names of God. And so we're not going to measure our success as a popularity contest or as a sales campaign or whether we're generating persecution, much less martyrdom. Because what we're called to is faithfulness, as Mother Teresa would say, not success. And let the chips fall where God wants them to. At the same time, we also ought to take caution about the idea that we're going to rush into martyrdom because nobody's capable of that. That's a special grace. It's also a special calling. Were it to come to us, we would be prepared, hopefully, but at the same time, we would recognize that nobody is really capable on their own natural powers of doing something that requires that supernatural grace of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, it's probably coming, you know, but at the same time, it doesn't, it's not coming in order to kind of reinforce our cynicism, you know, how, how much we'd like to be right. I told you it was coming, you know. I think instead what we have to recognize is what a friend of mine says, and that is, okay, we're outnumbered. Okay, we're surrounded, all right? We're infiltrated. So what should we conclude? That there's never been a better time to be a faithful Catholic. Mm -hmm. That this is the time where we're going to get the grace that we need to become saints. And transforming bread and wine into Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity is something awesome but penultimate because the whole purpose of that is to transfigure sinners like me into saints and nothing less. And again, this isn't like religious rhetoric. These aren't Catholic talking points. 
This is just simply what we would deduce from all of the sacred mysteries that we profess every Sunday in the creed. And so for me to grow up and to appreciate the fact that, you know, theology is therapy. Good theology is some, like the best therapy, especially when it's Christ-centered, when it leads us back to the Eucharist. It leads us home to recognize, okay, I represent Christ as the bridegroom. I want to love my beloved bride, Kimberly. For 44 years, God has been faithful to us. These, more than speculative theologizing, this is the way that we live out all of the faith that we profess. And we enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've mentioned plenty of times on various programs over the last 20 years especially, that when we look back on the 20th century, it's the most violent century in human history. You know what the second most violent one was? 13th. Oh, my. 13th century had 50 million people killed, mostly in the Mongolian invasions. So That's that was... sobering. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the greatest of uh, centuries. Yeah. <laughs> but also had incredible violence right. as the Mongol horde, you know, crossed over Asia and into Europe and people, especially in Asia, died. And the next, the end of the next century was pretty bad with Tamerlane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, only 30 million, but nothing compares to the 20th century with 305 million mm -hmm. who were killed in genocide and war. And the, the, by far the worst were the communists. You know, it's, 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 again, it's re important to remember in the 20th century, 40 out of 75 million martyrs were killed. Mm. More than half of all the martyrs of the whole history of the church died in the 20th century. That's staggering. It is. You know, it's 75 million martyrs in Christian history, but 40 million of them died in the last 100 years. And when we look at forces on the same left who are cheering a horrible atrocity from back on in October in Israel and are exhilarated. And it's not Nazis. You know, it's not thugs. That was an African-American professor at Cornell. Right. I mean, this is a very sophisticated man. And he's exhilarated by that death. And many others. Always keep that in mind. We are not at home in a place where people champion violence and evil. You, we, we need to be at home with Martin Luther King Jr., who said, hate uh, is not dispelled by hate. Right. It's dispelled by love. We quote him. Yes, son. Dark, yeah. And, and darkness is not dispelled by darkness, but by light. Right. Because Pope Benedict quotes Martin Luther King precisely on that point. Exactly. You know, I remember 9-11 and trying to deal with it with my younger kids uh, in our home. 
And it wasn't easy. I, I, I went down for a, a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament to came, come back with some wisdom. And, you know, one of the things that I reminded uh, our kids was that, look, the mortality rate is 100%. None of us are going to get out here alive. But the immortality rate is also 100%. So everybody who ever lived and died still lives in one state or another. And so what do we do? We face evil. But 9-11 wasn't the darkest day in human history. Good Friday almost certainly was. The single greatest sin that the human race ever perpetrated against Almighty God. And what did he do? Well, he kept a stiff upper lip. He made lemonade out of... No, he turned Good Friday into the single greatest good that the Lord God ever achieved. The redemption of the human race comes precisely in and through the greatest sin that we commit against the greatest gift that God ever gave. And it's not like a one-time event, you know. No, this is a pattern that God's strength is made weak, is made perfect in our weakness, and that the, that the light of God shines more brightly in darkness. And so when we wonder, why does he allow this darkness Wait patiently, but endure faithfully because we've got to believe that the best is not yet to come necessarily in our lifetime. But, you know, after a hundred million years, we're going to look back from heaven and wonder why this life on earth seems so interminably long. It is long in a way. We emphasize the virtue of longanimity from Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, but it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, it's a lifetime. But the more we catch up with the Lord's program, I think the freer we're going to be. Ultimately, when we see that we're in exile, we're pilgrims, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't detach us from this world and leave us unconcerned. It makes us more fearless to be more involved as apostles in this world to bring the kingdom of heaven to bear as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is a, a, a very key factor to remember even when we have problems within the church, you know, there are tensions in the church, we all aware, um, and folks sometimes politicize our doctrine. Right. And you get harassed. But we're in exile, and we stay with the truth that Christ gave, and no matter what the harassment might be, you go and you find, okay, then I'll move over here. This might be the other place the Lord wants me to be. Right. We're not playing a game of hear no evil, see no evil. No. We're just playing reality by not fixating on the evil. Yeah. You know, you look at the first century and you see our Lord as the pioneer of our salvation. And what's he doing? He's dealing with corruption, confusion, and partisan politics, not with Pilate and Herod only, but with Caiaphas and Annas, the clergy, the hierarchy. Yeah. And you see this throughout history, the Old Testament and the New. God gets his sons and daughters through back then. He'll get us through now. Exactly. That's why I told you not so long ago, earlier today. There's nothing new under the sun. Amen. And it, so we expect that we keep going forward the way the Lord opens up the one newness, which is salvation. I want to, again, help people to remember this, this, this book. It's called Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. It's written by our guest tonight, Dr. Scott Hahn, and his friend, Brandon McGinley. You can get it at our religious catalog, where it is item A312. 
1-800-273-2423, and it is available at EWTNRC.com. You know, over the years, uh, and, and I think this one of the things that your this book uh, helps to show, you've been unfolding, you know, as you've grown in your Catholicism, because that's all, we're all doing that. Right. But you, you're starting to see an integrity and wholeness. This book fits in with, it is right and just, fits in with the Lamb's Supper, the Lamb Supper yeah. you know, that all these different pieces of the puzzle. And I guess what you're doing, I, I wish for all of our family watching us, that you too begin to see the pieces of the puzzle form the outline and get the picture, and not only form the picture of faith, but be filled with joy with the picture God gives us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate most it. welcome, Father Mitch. And may the Lord bless you and all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And we can bring you, not only have Scott as our guest tonight, but the programs that he does on uh, other hours and such, and all the other programs, only because this network is brought to you by you, keeping us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and cable bill. Our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to have this network brought to you by you. So please remember to do so. God bless you, and thank you all.